Hello, and welcome to Chad's ADHD 365 podcast. This program is sponsored by Tris Pharma. Tris Pharma uses Liquid XR technology to develop innovative medicines that address unmet patient needs, including the treatment of ADHD and related disorders. Tris Pharma is dedicated to keeping patients with ADHD and their families educated and connected. Visit www.trispharmaproducts.com to find educational resources and more information on Tris Pharma's treatment options for patients six years and older with ADHD. Hello, I'm your host, Susan Booning, and I'm here today with Dr. Carolyn Lynch-Parcells. We're going to be talking about mental health and wellness for teens with ADHD. Dr. Lynch-Parcells, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So as Susan said, I'm Dr. Carolyn Lynch-Parcells. I'm a board-certified pediatrician practicing adolescent medicine in the Fort Worth area. And a lot of my patient population is young people and young adults with ADHD. And a lot of that is because I have ADHD and a learning disability myself. Thank you. So what are the signs and symptoms of depression in teens? That is a great question. So there are some similarities between the symptoms of depression in teenagers as well as in adults, but there's also some differences. So for example, in teenagers, one of the really hallmark symptoms of depression is what we call irritability, right? That short fuse, which is tricky because teenagers can be a little irritable at baseline. But the kind of concept of the moody teenager is really false, okay? If you have a young person who is particularly irritable, particularly moody, having a lot of mood swings, that can very much be a potential sign or symptom of depression. And that's the other thing that can be different with teenagers versus adults. Certainly in adults, depressive symptoms can wax and wane, can come and go, can be more severe and less severe. But in teenagers in particular, it's really very, it's variable. It's highly variable. You can have, and that's that's a complaint I hear from parents a lot, is the mood swings. They're like, well, how are they depressed? Because one minute they're down or they're angry or they're sad and the next minute they're happy. That's just part of their brain development and how depression can present in teenagers. They can also, of course, have either increased sleep or decreased sleep. They can have worsening attention and concentration, which of course in our ADHD kids can be complicated because, you know, is that depression or is that our ADHD? They can have changes in appetite. So either eating less or eating more, changes in energy level, motivation. Certainly we see, we can see some difficulties and more struggling in school. And sometimes that results in decreased grades or really overtly struggling in school. But a lot of times these kids can mask it and they can mask it for a very long time. So by the time their grades are actually dropping, the likelihood is something's been going on for a while. And then, of course, the most severe symptom is, is suicidality, right? Thoughts of self-harm or wanting to end one's life. And of course, those are the most concerning symptoms, not that the other symptoms aren't concerning. And anxiety, we can see, and this is the tricky bit, we can see a lot of the same symptoms. We can see irritability. We can see difficulty with concentration and focus. We can see what looks like hyperactivity, a lot of movement, those kinds of things. We can see certainly the classic verbalizing nervousness or worry, excessive worry about things and having difficulty controlling that. 
But anxiety is ultimately an overdeveloped sense of fight or flight. So we can have flee, fight, or freeze. And depending on the kid and depending on kind of their tendency, sometimes that anxiety comes out as fight. So it can be verbal irritability or aggression. It can even be physical aggression. So the anxiety piece can come out in a lot of different ways. What are the emotional and behavioral changes that parents and teachers should really be on the alert for? One of the things, so with depression, isolation. You know, a kid who starts to push away from their friend group, especially if it's a good and supportive friend group. Somebody who um, starts maybe pushing away or isolating more from family. You know, a lot of times kids do want their their personal space and their privacy. So they may want to spend more time in their room than they used to. But especially if that's a significant shift for this particular child, that's something to pay attention to. Again, that irritability, just having an even shorter fuse than usual. Those are some of the kind of key things. Increased anger. Those are some of the things that I always really watch for. And when I hear are red flags to me. The other thing that catches my attention too is when a kiddo stops doing some of the things that they used to love doing, okay? Some of the things that they really used to enjoy. Now, sometimes I'll have a young person tell me like, hey, you know what? I've been playing soccer for my whole life and it's just not fun anymore. I don't like my coach. I don't like my team. And it's very reasonable and that's okay. They don't have to play soccer for their whole life. But if they're starting to do that more and more with things they used to really love, and there's not a super great reason that they can verbalize as to why that is, then that's something that usually catches my attention as well. What are the main causes for depression in teens and how do they differ by gender? Oh, that's a great question. Um, It can be really multifactorial, right? So certainly there's a genetic component. There are folks who, I like to use the diabetes analogy, if you will. So for example, with type 2 diabetes, to develop diabetes, you have to have a genetic predisposition, but then there's also some environmental factors. For some people, that genetic predisposition is so strong that they will have diabetes no matter how good they take care of themselves, no matter what lifestyle choices they make. For some people, if they exercise more, eat some of these things, then they will either have a lower risk of diabetes or they may not have diabetes or be able to have their diabetes resolve. I see depression in a very similar light because it is highly variable. So for some folks, the depression predisposition to depression is so strong that it's a chronic illness and it's something that they or various family members deal with throughout their lives. For some kids, it is certainly triggered by situational circumstances. We've seen for COVID, for example, we have seen a huge increase in depression with COVID. And there's some research to suggest that COVID itself, like the actual infection, can increase the rate and the risk of depression throughout all age groups. But teenagers are are not excluded from that. But then, of course, the other piece of that is what happened to us during COVID. Again, isolation. So isolation can be a symptom of depression but it can also cause depression. We are social creatures, right? So being disconnected from people, being disconnected from loved ones and friends can definitely contribute to depression. Trauma obviously can contribute to depression. Poor sleep, that's one of the ironies too, right? Depression causes poor sleep. Poor sleep can cause depression. It's a vicious cycle. But not not least of which as one of the causes would be undiagnosed or untreated or undertreated ADHD. 
in our population, depression is a big risk, especially if we're not fully treated because untreated ADHD or undertreated ADHD has been shown to be a risk factor for developing depression as well as anxiety. Now, of course, the tricky part is, is genetically, depression, anxiety, and ADHD seem to like to run together too. I call them the three musketeers. <laughs> They're like three best friends. And the challenge can be that ADHD that is undertreated or untreated can cause depression or anxiety. Depression can look like ADHD. Depression can mask ADHD. Anxiety can look like ADHD and anxiety can mask ADHD. And you can also have all three independently of each other, just complicating each other all day long. So it can be, especially for teenagers who haven't been diagnosed yet, it can be really tricky. It can be really tricky. I've had kids walk into my clinic for depression or anxiety who I'm then able to diagnose with ADHD, and that's the cause of their depression and anxiety. I've had kids where we had to treat the depression and anxiety, and then we could see the ADHD, right? And then I've had kids that very clearly have all of the above. Now, in teens with ADHD, teens already diagnosed, can depression be prevented? What can parents do? I'm going to say yes and no, okay? Because we can't, one of the tricky parts is it's hard to predict who will develop depression. Again, obviously, if there's a very strong family history of depression, then that increases somebody's risk. But it's also not a definitive. Like, it doesn't mean for sure this pe- person's going to develop depression. So it's hard to say with 100% certainty if you can prevent it in everybody. But what I will say is what we do know from the research is that in reams of research to that is, again, one of the biggest parts, one of the most preventative things we can do is treating ADHD. The research shows us that if we optimally treat ADHD, it significantly decreases risk for depression, anxiety, substance use, substance abuse, substance dependence, lifelong. So that is one of the most critical things. And I, I, again, the research shows us it can prevent depression. Does that mean that optimally treating our ADHD is going to prevent depression in every single teenager? Absolutely not. Of course not. But it can prevent depression in at least a fair number of those kiddos. When I say optimally treat ADHD too, I want to clarify what I mean by that. Because ADHD, we do believe that ADHD needs to be treated in a multimodal fashion, right? So pharmacology, medication, where appropriate and for the right person, we know about 85% or more of people with ADHD will have a positive response to medication. So that's often a piece for a lot of people. But then there's also therapy and coaching and skills building and support systems and accommodations and all of those things. And I think the other thing that I've noticed just in practice, my kids who are receiving treatment for their ADHD, who are getting support from their families, getting support from their friends, getting support from their teachers, just by virtue of having the support, just by virtue of understanding themselves and their brains better, by virtue of having less guilt and shame in their lives, overall do better. In addition to that, when they're in that kind of environment, they are more used to talking about what's going on. They're more used to talking about their feelings. And when you give, I tell people all the time, taking care of teenagers, what I do is not rocket science. 
They want to tell somebody everything. They really do. All you have to do is give them a safe, non-judgmental space to do it, and they will talk. So that is the other really key piece I would share with parents is providing that environment, allowing your kids to have that space to talk, to process in a non-judgmental way, knowing that especially for ADHD kids, that talking may take a while, (laughs) either because they're a talker like me, or because for some of our kids, it takes them a while to process and think about what they want to say and express what they want to say. And that can take time as well. But knowing that they have that support, knowing that they can talk about what they're feeling is critical. And then last but not least, I know this is going to sound cheesy, (laughs) but it's cheesy for a reason. One of my mentors told me one time when I was pregnant with my first, he said, and I was worried about making mistakes. He said, Carrie, just love them. Just love them. And it sounds so simple. And we all know that life is more complicated, (laughs) but truly telling them that you love, making sure they know they are loved, making sure they know, even if they're rolling their eyes at you and saying, ew, mom, stop, which my kids are already doing. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. You can't tell them enough. You can't show them enough. And we know from the research on resilience that connection, like I mentioned earlier, connection and community are two of the most important things to prevent depression, to prevent suicide, to address those really scary issues. And that really leads right into the next thing I wanted to ask you, which is whether you could talk a bit about hopelessness, because that sense of hopelessness I've heard in so many places is just such a serious and even alarm-raising kind of thing to notice in your children. It is. It is. And I'm glad you brought that up. It's a hard one to talk about. I do think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing increased rates of depression, of suicidality, of anxiety. And again, the research shows, I mean, it it makes sense, right? It's, it sounds like it would be completely intuitive that that would be the case. In addition to that though, the research shows us that one thing, hopelessness is one of the most important and key risk factors to suicidality. And sure, part of the key is, is doing everything we can to try to prevent them from getting to that point. If we can, but we also have to know that we aren't in control of all of it. And I say that because I know parents out there who are trying so hard and doing everything they can to help their kids. And I want them to know that that is seen and heard. Sorry, I'm getting emotional about it. <laughs> because I I, it is, it's so hard to see that in a young person. But again, it comes back down to, you know, how do we build resilience? How do we improve connection? How do we if they have the space to be in the permission, I think one of the things that I see so much from teenagers is they want to protect their parents. They want to protect their friends. They don't want to be a burden. So those kiddos won't talk about it when they need to talk about it. So if you, again, if we make it a regular thing in our households, if we talk about how we're feeling, if we make it okay to have those conversations and we make it okay to have conversations about those scary and challenging emotions and feelings and make it okay to actually talk about it, that in and of itself can be huge. It also means that we can get them help 
when we first start seeing this come up, when we first start seeing them struggle, as opposed to not knowing because they've been able to hide it for so long. Because some of these kids really can hide it incredibly well. But the other piece of that is social media, screens, limited. They will not be happy about it. If they're older teenagers, they might want it. They might want you to do that is what I mean. I actually know a lot of my teenagers are sick of it themselves. But one of the challenges we're running into is there's the social media aspect of it, of the, when we were kids, we didn't know what everybody was doing all the time. We didn't know what we were being left out of. If we were bullied, it, it wasn't great, but it stayed at school, right? These kids have in their hands, in their faces, 24-7 reminders of what they aren't or who they aren't or what they're missing out of, or at least that's what it feels like, right? Because nobody's life is like what it looks like on social media, okay? But they're constantly bombarded with this. Then in addition to that, they're com- constantly bombarded with world news, We didn't know what was going on in our own town, let alone all over the world. No, I didn't read the newspaper and I wasn't allowed to stay up in time to watch the news, right? But those things really are very challenging. And I, again, I have kids who come in and sometimes it's a personal hopelessness and sometimes it's the way they're feeling about the world. So limiting that information flow, not saying that we want to gatekeep information. We want these kids to understand the world but not spending so much time on it or so much time in front of it. Because the other piece of it too is what they're missing out on when they're being on the screens. They're missing out on physical activity. They're missing out on time outside. They're missing out on in-person connection with people. Research shows us that outside time is important for emotional and physical health. It helps ADHD. Exercise, we have research that shows helps ADHD, helps depression, helps anxiety. And the other thing that's really interesting in the research is you do not, the same parts of your brain don't light up the same way when you're on FaceTime with somebody. Even if you're looking at their face and you're looking in their eyes, it, we do not get the same bump of dopamine, <laughs> if you will, as we get when we're actually connecting with somebody face-to-face. And again, connection is important. Now, there's also some positives to connecting online. Certainly, there are kids who have found support, very important and very helpful support online. So I'm not saying it's you know completely evil, but we do need to be limiting it and we need to be trying to teach them good habits, which brings me back to the other problem with screens is us, the adults. I've started to have kids ta- talking to me about how their parents are on the screens, their parents are on the phone. They can't get their parents' attention because their parent is distracted by the screen. And if we cannot connect with them at home, which is supposed to be their core base, they're just floating out there. They need that connection at home to then be able to deal with all the stuff outside. And I'm guilty of this too. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not throwing shade as the kids like to say, or judging. I'm, I am just as guilty. I've even told my kids if you, have, if you see me on my phone when you're trying to have a conversation with me and I am not looking at your face, call me out. Call me out respectfully, but I give you permission to call me out. That is so important. And yes, connection. Connection, connection. Again, again it, com- it keeps coming back down. You know, it, it all keeps coming back to connection, truly. Yes. Now, how are anxiety and depression related? 
That's a whole dissertation in and of itself, isn't it? Because there's genetics, there's biochemistry, there's neurobiology, there's psychology. But the kind of simplified answer, if you will, is you can have an anxiety disorder and that anxiety disorder, trying to deal with that anxiety disorder can cause depression. You can have depression without anxiety initially. And that depression over time can lead to anxiety. And then, of course, you can have both, kind of independent of each other. And the best way I kind of describe that is, for example, if you treat the depression and the anxiety gets better, right? Or you treat the anxiety and the depression gets better. Now, of course, the challenge there is a lot of the medicines we use for one, we use for both. <laughs> so sometimes we never quite know. And then the other piece of that too is it does they do appear to run together genetically. And of course, we know from a neurotransmitter standpoint, norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, all of these, actually what we're learning more and more is that these neurotransmitters, it's not just one or the other, or depression is only caused by serotonin issues or anxiety is only caused by dopamine issues. We're learning more and more that it's likely a balance issue, that there's an issue with the balance of neurotransmitters. So that's another way where they are probably connected and related. And it's also a really interesting area of research. Now, I'd like to ask you to talk first a little bit about the recommended behavioral interventions for teens with depression or anxiety. Sure. Great. So cognitive behavioral therapy is definitely one of the therapies that is recommended. What's interesting about therapy in general, I find fascinating. I'm going to speak on this. I want to preface this with, I am not a therapist. I am a physician. So I'm going to stay in my lane for the most part and tell you, this is what I understand from the therapists I work with. <laughs> this is not what I do myself because it is not my area of expertise. But what I find really interesting talking to the therapist that I work with is that while yes, CBT is still one of the primary forms of therapy that we know really helps with anxiety, especially, but can also help with depression. There are so many other forms of therapy out there now. And we're learning more and more, just like we learn a particular medication actually works for multiple things as time goes on. We're finding more and more that different therapies work for different things. For example, dialectical behavioral therapy, right? Used to be for like one thing. And now we're realizing it can actually help with multiple things. So the classic is cognitive behavioral therapy, but there are other therapeutic modalities out there. But certainly when I have a young person who's struggling with depression and or anxiety, regardless of whatever else we are doing to treat that, I always recommend therapy. Always. And shifting back into your lane, what medications are usually recommended? Certainly. So first-line medications, if we feel that, it's, that we need to go that route, for both depression and anxiety in teenagers is the SSRI class. So the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, those are our first line for really both of them. Now there are, everybody's, again, everybody's a little different. So we try to use our best judgment based on the research, the age of the patient, the family history to choose one that we think is most likely to be effective for that patient. But we really don't know until we try. And some SSRIs can be more effective for anxiety but again, it differs by person. The other thing that's interesting with the SSRIs is we find that in general, and again, everybody's different, oftentimes the anxiety piece actually needs higher doses than the depression piece. We also see that with OCD. So yeah, the SSRIs are typically our first line. 
And then are there particular considerations when a teen is, when part of their treatment plan includes medication for ADHD? Certainly. So actually what's interesting is this is Dr. Parcell's experience. This is not necessarily research-based. Let me be clear on that. But what I have found is that not all the time, and it's not an anti-anxiety medicine, but I actually find Intuniv, which is the trade name, Guanfazine ER is the generic name, to oftentimes be very helpful in my kids who have ADHD and anxiety in particular. So Guanfazine is a different kind of medicine. It's called an alpha adrenergic agonist. It's one of the non-stimulant medications that we use for the treatment of ADHD and often in combination with a stimulant. And traditionally, it's used for impulsivity, hyperactivity, irritability, aggression, sleep, et cetera. What's interesting though is the way the medication, the mechanism of the medication is, is it basically tamps down the sympathetic nervous system. Well, what's your sympathetic nervous system? It's the part of your brain and your body responsible for your fight or flight response. What is anxiety? Overdeveloped sense of fight or flight. So it makes sense to me that in those of us who already have clearly a little, shall we say, highly wired on that side, I count myself among them, that that medicine might actually help with the anxiety itself in addition to some of our ADHD symptoms. So I will sometimes use guanfazine in that scenario. Now, certainly that's not going to work for everybody. So for some of my patients, absolutely, we use an SSRI. And SSRIs can be used in conjunction with the stimulant medications, in conjunction with guanfazine. If somebody is on one of the non-stimulant medications, such as Kelbri or Stratera, which is an SNRI, that's a different story. And that's, it's not to say we can't use them together, but it's, that's a little bit trickier because they're more similar, even though they're different classes of medicine. But with the stimulants, we absolutely can use the SSRIs. Now, we can see the medications, the word we use is potentiate each other or kind of work together, if you will, in a good way. However, that does mean that sometimes I'll go a little bit slower on increasing the SSRI because it could make, they make each other a little bit more effective, but that also means we can overshoot the mark, right? So we do try to be aware of that. And then of course, the medication, any medication carries its own set of side effects. So we always want to be very clear about what the side effects could be, how to manage that, when to call your provider, all of those kinds of things. And we take all of these medicines very seriously. Now, if we could shift just a little bit to talking about young adults, the older, a little bit older than high school age, what kind of supports would you recommend for these young adults with ADHD as they are transitioning into adulthood and college life? And how would that differ from the kinds of supports you'd recommend for teens in high school? For just ADHD in general or when we're also dealing with, with depression and anxiety? ADHD, possibly depression and anxiety sure. and prevention of those sure. as well. Coaching, 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 coaching. <laughs> I think at that age, we're moving into how do we take, you know, one of my favorite Russell Barkley quotes is ADHD is a disorder, is not a disorder of knowing what to do. It's a disorder of doing what we know. So we're now moving into the, oh, now I got to do without mom and dad. And sometimes I'm going to listen to somebody who's not mom and dad better than I'm going to listen to mom and dad. And we also want them to start doing that. We want them to learn how to problem solve who to ask for help when, and knowing how to use a coach or other supports like that 
is a lifelong skill that frankly, I think everybody needs, whether they've got ADHD or not. Now, ideally, we're not instituting this right as they're graduating or right as they're moving out of their parents' house or right as they're starting their job or going to college. I recommend coaching for my patients. Really, it depends on the kid at what age they can really benefit from it and really get a lot out of it. But certainly in high school, you know, helping them to really develop those self-management skills those lovely executive functions and what we need to do to work with our executive dysfunction and those kinds of things. So I think trying to be proactive is key so that they can start to learn those skills before they're out on their own. But it's also never too late to start. Uh, But I definitely think coaching can be very helpful. Now, if we're talking about depression and anxiety as well, then again, we come back to counseling. I think counseling can be very important. And again, especially when we're starting to shift where they are looking for support and we're trying to help them to be more independent. But the other piece of that is, is just because they're becoming more independent doesn't mean they can't still ask mom and dad for support or help or assistance. But what I like to kind of encourage parents to do is as they get older, is put them in a position where they're the one asking for help and they're asking for what kind of help they need. I still need help. I'm a physician and a mom and a business owner and a human with ADHD, and I need help. I'm not doing it all on my own. This is not a one-woman show. I've had to learn who to ask for help and when. I utilize a coach. I utilize my parents. (laughs) I utilize my office manager. So I think helping them to start to figure out who do they ask for help and when is very critical. And again, maintaining connection maintaining connection, maintaining connection. Yes. Do you have some recommendations for how support can be tailored for teens with ADHD who are LGBTQ and particularly those who may not have support at home or who may be struggling to find that support? Yeah, that's that is a really great question as well. So, I'm going to say again, it comes down to connection, but of course the challenge there can be where do we find connection and where do we find healthy connection? And certainly there can be some online support groups and things like that if someone can't find in-person connection or community where they are for whatever reason. Again, I think counseling with a supportive and affirming counselor is absolutely critical. And finding their, again, finding their community, which again, in some places is easier than in others. I will say that, you know, I've been doing this. I don't even want to say how long I've been doing this because it's going to make me feel old. (laughs) But I have seen gratefully a shift just in the time I've been practicing. When I first got into practice, most of my kids who identified as LGBTQ plus were, even if they were out to me, as their physician, they weren't out to their families. They likely weren't out to their friends to, I would say the vast majority of my patients are now. And certainly there are those who are not getting the support from their families or their friends or have lost friends through that process, which breaks my heart. But the good news is I am seeing more open support for the LGBTQ plus community, which is wonderful. And again, I know that's going to vary by person. It's going to vary by location. There's a lot of variables there. But certainly finding community, finding connection, finding a therapist who, again, is supportive and affirming are some of the biggest keys. 
Yes. And as we're coming now to it's three years that we've been in this global COVID pandemic. I can't believe it. And what are you seeing in terms of the effects of this and on mental health, specifically in teens and specifically on teens with ADHD? It's been rough. It's been rough. I definitely, we definitely have seen increase in depression. We have seen increase in anxiety. We've seen increase in eating disorders. That's another area of my clinic. And so we've seen that very much. In fact, when the pandemic first hit, that was the first kind of spike in mental illness that I saw was a severe spike in eating disorders. And then very shortly thereafter, of course, was the depression and anxiety. And I think some of that, like I said, we do have evidence that COVID itself, the infection itself can contribute to that. But again, I think so much of it had to do with the isolation, with the lack of connection and those kinds of things. But the other piece of it is, and again, it's interesting because it depends on kind of the point in development folks were when this happened, because it affected everybody differently obviously based on a whole slew of reasons, but in the kids and teenagers and young adults, I see differences based on where they were in development when it happened. Because we've got a lot of kids who are behind academically, especially if they were doing online school. I mean, there were so many variables in school. For some kids, the online school was great. For some of my ADHD kids, online school was great. For some of my ADHD kids, online school was a disaster. For some of my non-ADHD kids, online school was a disaster. So there are academic deficits. They're trying to catch up. There are social deficits because not only were we isolated, but they didn't have the opportunity to play sports, to have play dates, to hang out, to do all the things that kids typically would do at whatever age or stage they were at when the pandemic hit. So one of the things we're seeing, and I've some of my teacher friends have said they agree they're seeing this as well, is two-year delay in maturity. And I say that What I mean by that is social and emotional maturity because there's this, I call it discordant development. Because when I say immaturity, it makes them sound like they're completely immature. They are not. Because there are other ways in which they had to mature so much faster. And the problem is, is the deficits are in the things that we need, like social and emotional development and connection to prevent depression. And the stuff that we had to expose them to at younger ages, death, disease, all of the other things, I don't want to even get into it, but all the other things going on in the world that they were privy to and exposed to, they had to grow up a lot faster, but while also not getting all these other things they needed to be able to process and deal with all of that. So it's definitely been highly variable by kid, by family, by age group, by so many factors. But I'd say overall, it's all of those factors have contributed to the increase in depression and anxiety in teenagers and young adults. Thank you. You've given us so much wonderful information, but I always have to ask this. Is there anything that you'd like to talk about that I didn't ask? I think for the most part, we really hit on all of it. I think the main thing that I would want to just leave with is, and I say this as a physician, but more importantly, as a mom and as an adult with ADHD, and especially with everything going on right now with the medication shortages, Do not be afraid to fight for yourself and fight for your kid. Do not be afraid to have those tough conversations. Do not let anybody make you feel like a failure. Do not let anybody let you feel ashamed for trying to get what your kid needs, for getting treatment for your child. Do what you have to do 
to help your child and to help you. It's a tough time right now, but do what you have to do and don't let anybody stop you. Wow, thank you so much, Dr. Lynch Parcells. Thank you for listening to this podcast supported by Tris Pharma, the makers of Liquid XR technology. Tris Pharma is committed to supporting the ADHD community through education and innovation. Learn more at www.trispharmaproducts.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of Chad's ADHD 365 podcast.